Well, in uh, 2016, Time Magazine wrote an article, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Kluger, and he said that America's anger is getting out of control. He said, the article actually begins by saying, quote, the easiest thing you will do all day is get ticked off at something. Someone cuts ahead of you in traffic, ticked off. Guy in front of you at Starbucks needs his entire order remade because his mocha half-calf double frap had the wrong number of espresso shots in it, even though you know full well nobody can taste the difference, exceedingly ticked off. He goes on to say, we're all that way, and that's a problem. Anger is the lazy person's emotion. It's quick, it's binary, it's delicious, and more and more we're gorging on it. Kluger then goes on to document all the different groups of people that are outraged uh, at something today. From the generalized populace of America towards her government, all the way down to vegans being outraged, dancers being outraged, gardeners being outraged, and yes, even documents knitters being outraged. Uh, And in another Time uh, magazine article uh, regarding the uptick of anger in America, another author comments as well on anger, and he says this. He says, some anger has uses. Without a push to do better, we would not have gotten to the pinnacle of living uh, we have reached where diseases have been subdued, literacy spread, and hunger severely reduced, the restless drive to betterment has made unimaginable luxuries, such as having access to all human knowledge in your pocket, a commonplace even for many of the poor. Angry protesters have often resulted in improved conditions. But, he says, when dissatisfaction becomes anger, it is less likely to be useful than it is polarizing and injurious. And he concludes by saying one question which answers itself is this. Is the country better for being so angry? Unquote. Well, we are going to attempt to answer that question this morning. We're going to do that by taking a look at Jonah chapter 4, where a very similar question is asked. And as we do this, as we walk through Jonah chapter 4, we're going to compare the anger of man against the compassion of God. You're going to see those two things on display today. We're going to compare, we're going to see in the anger of man, what we're going to see in the anger of man is that it often results from a selfish blindness to God's grace. And what we're going to see in God is the opposite. We're going to see a joyful orientation of lavishing grace upon the nations, among the nations. So let me set up the story here where we get in here to our final chapter of Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is in the Old Testament. This is before Christ has come. And what we've seen so far is the compassion of God swallowing up the rebellion of man or the prejudices of man. God, we see in chapter 1, was rightfully incensed or rightfully angry at Nineveh for their evil ways. God appoints uh, Jonah to go and speak against uh, the Ninevites. But Jonah didn't like that mission, so he fled from the presence of the Lord And as is always the case when he fled from the presence of the Lord, it was nice for a time, but soon Jonah found himself in a place he did not want to be. So he, uh, a storm comes up, he is thrown into the sea, at which time it is quieted, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah then is saved. Jonah then is saved. And so fresh off of God's mercy to him, Jonah is coughed up or vomited out, uh, and he makes this still reluctant vow to now speak the word of the Lord to the Ninevites. And after doing so, in chapter, in chapter 3, 
Jonah then goes and he speaks those eight words to the Ninevites. And after that, we see the Ninevites turn from their evil ways and trust in God for mercy. Uh, And we might not expect God in this moment to have mercy on these Ninevites because the Ninevites were known for being enemies of God's people, Israel. And God has constantly said time and again that he would judge those that were bad to his people. Yet we also know from the storyline of the Bible that God wants a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so what we find God doing after the Ninevites repent and believe on God, trusting in him for mercy, God shows them mercy. And they are saved, 120,000 of them. We're amazed by this. Now, we might expect the story to stop right there. But it doesn't. There's a deeper point the Lord wants us to see in this story. And so the point or the conclusion of this book of Jonah can be seen in those last two verses that you heard Sidney read in chapter 4. So the book, or the I like to call it a chapter. Think of the books in the Bible as chapters. Uh, It ends, this book, this chapter ends with a rhetorical question. Did you notice that? It's the kind of question that we should all read and immediately know the answer to. And so bound up in those last two verses is the two things I've already mentioned. The anger of man and the compassion of God. And so we're going to take a look at both of those and come to the conclusion I think God would have us to. So first, the anger of man. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. The anger of man. So taking a look there in verse 1, we note that Jonah's anger quickly rises. As opposed to God's anger that's slow we see very quickly in verse 1, Jonah is quickly angry. It says in verse 1 that it, the repentance and salvation of the Ninevites, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And what is it that Jonah's angry about? Well, he's he's angry because the Ninevites are saved. They were shown grace. So his enemies were shown favor. They were shown salvation. That's why he's angry. Jonah's anger comes on the heels of Nineveh's salvation. He's ticked. He's very anger because, angry because he doesn't want Nineveh to get anything good. Because he doesn't like the Ninevites. So it's important, guys, that you understand. That it's important that you feel even Jonah's anger here. The author is going out of his way to help us understand the venom of Jonah. So this isn't the equivalent here. Jonah's anger is not the equivalent of him sort of getting a flat tire on the side of the road one day and being angry that it inconvenienced him. This is a deep-seated angry. We, he's so angry, look in verse 3, that he wants to die. So Jonah, after this expression of um, anger to God, he then goes east of the city, sits up on a hill, and watch. he sets up a booth as well, and sits outside of the town and watch to see what happens. Maybe, I'm, maybe he's thinking that something bad still might happen, he thinks. Maybe, maybe God still might bring some disaster to the city. And maybe he could get still some satisfaction for watching the Ninevites have something bad happen to them. But then God, we see in the text, God then appoints. Don't miss those words. God appoints a plant to cover up the sun from hitting Jonah's head. Jonah is suddenly very happy again only to be quickly upset when God appoints a worm and an east wind to take the shade plant down. At which time we see again in verse 9 that uh, Jonah is angry enough to die. And so if you don't get the deep-seated anger in Jonah's heart, you're missing the point of the story here. Jonah is an angry man. When it all comes down to it, the reason Jonah is angry is because things are not working out the way that he wants them to. 
That's why he's angry. Yet at the same time, we find that his anger is easily relieved anytime his own personal preferences are met. He's upset at the word of the Lord to call out the Ninevite. He flees the presence of God. And yet he's happy enough to sleep on a boat to Tarshish. He's unhappy at a storm and in the sea. Yet he's quickly happy when he gets saved. He's unhappy when the Ninevites repent and are shown favor. And yet he's happy to get a plant he didn't create to cover him from the sun, only to then be unhappy again when it is taken away from him. It's also important for us to see in Jonah's anger, we need to see who he's angry at. Note that most of Jonah's anger, maybe all of Jonah's anger, is directed at God. And we can understand that, right? Because we've seen throughout this story, God is appointing things for Jonah, isn't he? God's appointing a call for him to preach. He appoints a giant fish to swallow him up, down to a plant to to grow and a worm to kill it. Jonah is angry at God because he knows that ultimately God is behind all of the things that he doesn't like, which explains why he would want to flee the presence of the Lord. It also explains in verse 2 why his anger peaks. See, he doesn't, Jonah doesn't like the God who is. Jonah wants a God of his own creation. A God that affirms and comes alongside of all of his prejudices and all of his preferences. And as a result, Jonah would rather die than live in a world that is governed by a God that doesn't meet his personal agenda. People and plants are being moved around in such a way so as to not reflect his values and his comfort. But hold that thought for just a moment. We need to pause for a moment and peel back one more layer of Jonah's layer or Jonah's anger here. See, it's easy to pick on Jonah, isn't it, in this story? It's easy to pick on him. And I do think that's the point of the author in this story, to pick on Jonah a bit, to help us understand some flaws in Israel and in us even. But why is Jonah's anger so severe towards the Ninevites? Let's try to get in his skin a little bit more. Why is his anger so severe towards the Ninevites? Well, we have to remember Nineveh is the capital of who? It's the capital of Assyria, right? And Assyria were terrible to the Israelites. Terrible, awful. So it's possible, it's possible that Jonah had family members and friends that were maybe killed by these people. It's possible that Jonah maybe experienced prejudice himself from these Ninevites. And so he didn't like them. So we can see why Jonah would want them to receive the warning of his preaching, the judgment of God. We might even understand why he would want God to just be a God of justice to the Ninevites, not a God of mercy. We would understand that to a degree, right? If we would understand that he would just want them to be, God would be just to them and just get upset at them and bring wrath to them because of their evil. I mean, imagine being friends with Jonah, maybe being a Hebrew like Jonah yourself and sort of spending time with Jonah. We would understand that, right? Maybe think about it this way. Think about being a Jew that lived in the latter days of World War II. Wouldn't we want to see the full force of the Allied army crush the Germans? If you were a Jew, wouldn't you want that? The latter half of World War II, if we experienced all kinds of pain and anguish from the Germans, wouldn't we want to see them, those Germans, get the full force of the law? Perfectly understandable. In fact, more than understandable, even the right thing to do, right? To punish evil. So we can think about it even in our own day, from seeing murderers prosecuted all the way down to seeing our children disciplined, right? 
We want to see this. It's perfectly explainable. It's understandable, even right to expect justice when it is deserved. And I think it would even be right to say that God wants this justice and he is executing that in our day. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with Jonah's anger. And here's the problem with our own anger. When our personal preferences are not met. And instead, God shows favor to others that may deserve punishment. See, here's the problem. We rightly, understandably want God to execute justice on them. And yet we fail to realize that we don't want God to execute justice on us in the same way. We love the consistency of God's justice on criminals and enemies or rivals. We hunger, we thirst for it. And yet we don't hunger and thirst for God's justice to be consistently and even quickly applied to ourselves in the same way. We want God to be patient with us in his anger, don't we? And we want it to be quick towards our enemies. See, Jonah, we find in the story, loved the grace of God that led to his personal salvation in chapter 2. But that same grace of God that led to salvation was quickly hated by Jonah when it was applied to people he didn't like in chapter 3. Jonah's anger and our anger is often born out of a desire to receive the good gifts of God, but to not have those same gifts go towards those we don't like. We love it when grace and love and mercy and patience, God, benefits us. We love that. But we're angered when it benefits people we don't like. We might even question the goodness of God over it. See, We often want God to give those that are opposed to us the full measure of the law. And at the same time, we want God to show us grace when we fail that very same law. Some of you may say, well, Nathan, listen. My sins, yeah, they're bad. But listen, my enemies' sins, they're worse. They're worse than mine. They really, really deserve it. I only kind of deserve it. I kind of deserve it. They really deserve it. But friend, you have to remember, the lash of the law is not measured by what you have done so much as it is measured by who you have offended. So important to understand that. You've heard us use this illustration a lot, right? I jump the fence of my neighbor's yard. What happens? Police slap me on the wrist. I go do the very same thing at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House. I get thrown in jail. Why? What's the difference? The difference is in who I offended. Who I offended. And so the difference is in who I offended. And so it is with our wrongs. So it is with our sins. The problem is not necessarily in what we did as much as it is in who we offended. And so... No matter what we have done, all of us, every single person in this room, myself included, all deserve the penalty of hell. God's word says that there are none who are righteous. There are none who are good. None. We have all offended. We have all rebelled. We have all cursed. Think about it. We have all, in our own way, shook our fist in the face of God that made us in this world for himself. We have shook our fist at him. A single sin deserves an eternity of punishment. 
And God could justifiably throw every single human being on planet Earth, including ourselves, into the torments of hell forever. That's justice. That would be right for him to do. And if he, if God were to save just one or maybe even two or three people, we might be tempted to speak of his grace to even save them. How much more might we say of God that he saves millions? What does it say about God that he not only saves two or three, but millions? Does it not say the very thing that Jonah says there in verse 2? Does it not say that God is gracious? And he is merciful and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Most surely it does, right? We love the grace of God. We love the mercy of God. We love the steadfast love of God. We love that he is slow to anger towards us. And we so love that God relents from the disaster that should fall upon us. We love all of these things and as well we should. As well we should. But if we're being honest... Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we don't love it when God is these things towards people we don't like. Or people that make our lives a bit more difficult. We'd rather God reflect all those personal prejudices and personal preferences. We'd rather him sort of do that to those people. And at the same time, we would have him to be patient with us, gracious to us, merciful to us. Take a look down there at verse 10 and 11, chapter 4. I think you'll see there the Lord pointing out Jonah's contradiction. His inconsistent worship. You pity the plant, he says there. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then he goes on to say, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So this is exactly how Israel had acted towards the Lord time and again. What we're seeing here in verses 10 and 11, this contrast that God is having Jonah to understand is exactly what we see throughout Israel's history. So Israel loved it when God delivered them from the Egyptians, only to quickly then say, oh, this miraculous manna that just shows up every single day. I'm tired of it. I want some meat and go back to Egypt. Right? They quickly say that. They loved it when the Lord gave them the land of the Canaanites for free, but they didn't want to do what God actually told them to do to drive them out. They wanted to just kind of settle in. They loved God's protection, but they didn't love to protect the glory of God as was evidenced by them worshiping other gods. And so what we find, friends, is Jonah was like Israel. Israel was like Jonah. And we are like Jonah. And we are like Israel. Our anger is so often motivated by our failure to be consistent. Our anger is so often motivated by the desire to only receive the good gifts of God and yet not treasure God when those same gifts make it to our enemies. And brothers and sisters, we cannot only receive the good gifts of God. We must be happy to see those same good gifts make it to those of whom we may not like. And yet, not even that is enough. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. And love is not just an emotion, right? Love is an action. 
So it's not enough just to be happy that God's grace makes it to our enemies. We need to be the hands and the feet of God's love that brings it to our enemies and speaks it to them and shares it with them. We must be consistent in our worship of God. And that is how we show that we have been changed by the love of God. When we not only receive God's love, treasure God's love, but we give God's love to all, including those that don't deserve it. Because guess what? We never deserved it. We never deserved the love of God. We never. That's why it's called grace, right? We never deserve the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the patience of God. We never deserved it. And so herein, friends, is the secret to loving our enemies and dispelling our anger towards them. This, friends, is the secret that Jonah did not seem to understand. How quickly Jonah forgot that he once fled the presence of the Lord himself and was rescued by grace. And how quickly we forget that we who are in Christ were also rescued in the same way. That God saved us while we were enemies. We never did anything to earn the love of God. In fact, not only were we like Jonah, we also, apart from Christ, are just like Nineveh. Enemies of God, haters of his people. And yet God relented from disaster towards us, didn't he? He showed us grace. He showed us mercy. He showed us steadfast love. God in Christ was slow to anger towards us as his enemies. He wasn't quick. And to the one of whom salvation belongs, God grants that salvation to us who believe. And so if that is how God dealt with us, why should we not rejoice that God deals with our enemies in the same way? And why should we not then also, as ministers of this reconciliation, not also grant this kind of love and forgiveness and peace to our enemies? But I want to be clear on something here as we think about these things. The point of this text is not pull your bootstraps up and go be nice to your enemies. Go get them. It's not the point. The point is not for you to sort of try this really hard and you're going to leave here and try hard. The point is to be reminded that you were an enemy of God and God was good to you. For those of you that are in Christ, we know, we believe that the way of salvation is that God gave His Son who lived a sinless life to take our penalty on His back on the cross of Christ. Paying our penalty and satisfying that penalty through the resurrection. And through our repentance and belief, we gain Christ. We who are enemies. We get new life. And so we see in the cross and in the resurrection that instead of wrath, He gives His own, His righteousness. Instead of wrath, He gives us His Spirit. And in the power of that spirit, that righteousness, not in the power of ourselves, not in our own abilities, we move from that pattern and from that power towards our enemies to love them and to reconcile with them, remembering that we once were them. Right, you know exactly where I'm going, most of you. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. This whole thing should be ringing in our ears. Romans 5, 6 to 8. Paul says so clearly, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? 
The really good people that tried really hard and went to church and read their Bible and had their devotional seven days a week and shared the gospel three times? No. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me and you, Christian. For one will scarce love the logic here, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says that the power of God for salvation is not in us. It's in the gospel. It's in the God of the gospel. And so how is it we can see our anger quieted and our love quickened towards our enemies? That's the question, right? How is it we can see our anger quieted? How's Jonah showing us that? How, is it, how can we see our anger quieted and our love quickened towards our enemies? Well, we have to remember how God dealt with us. That's what Jonah did not do. He failed to remember that. And so we have to do what Jonah did not do. We have to regularly rehearse God's grace to us. We have to regularly remind ourselves of how God treated us. Friends, I hope what you're seeing in this is you never grow beyond the gospel. I think a lot of people think that the gospel is the sort of, you know, that's the sort of elementary school of the Christian faith and you kind of graduate to other more important things. No, you never move beyond the gospel. You only move deeper into the gospel. The more that I grow in grace, I'm 42 years old. I've been walking with Jesus for 20 something years. And the more I see my need for the gospel every day. I mean, I have to tell you guys, this is a hard sermon for me to preach because it's not like I do this really good. I need the gospel and you need the gospel to love our enemies. To care for them and show them the same love that God showed us. We've got to regularly rehearse this. The more I appreciate the gospel as I grow and see it, the more I see Jesus, I find power and I find the pattern for my life. And I think, too, we see the power and the pattern to see reconciliation happen in the world, a world that is really angry. The gospel is the answer. And so when we get upset or when something we don't like happens and we are tempted to be upset at someone, an enemy of someone, ask yourself that question. How did God treat me when he saw me as a sinner? And the more that we ask ourselves that, the more that we will be reminded then, listen, that it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. It wasn't the anger of God that led us to repentance. It was the kindness of God, Romans 2, that led us to repentance. And so it will be with your enemies, with your rivals. You will not change them by your anger. You will change them by your kindness, by your love, the same way that God loved you and changed you. Christian. So first, evaluate how God treated you as an enemy. Be reminded of his love, his patience, his grace to you. And in that way, the gospel provides you the pattern. There's the pattern. There's the example. But again, the power is not in us to live this out. It's too hard. It's too difficult. The power is in the gospel and the God of the gospel to love our enemies. We see the pattern in the gospel and the power then comes in the God of the gospel. And so we should, when we see those situations and those enemies and those hard things, we should see the pattern in Christ, how he treated us. And then second, we go to God in prayer and we ask him for the power, not in our own self, the power to then love as he loved. That doesn't mean that by doing this, it'll be easy. 
The way of the cross was not easy for Jesus. And it won't be easy for us. But we can do it if we trust in the power of God, not in the power of ourselves to love our enemies. See, when we look to the gospel to provide the pattern, the example, and the power, reminding ourselves of how patient he was to us, then going to him to trust him for the power to live it out, not trusting ourselves. As we do this, church family, the more we do this, the world is going to take notice. The world will take notice. I think we have a promise of that in Matthew 5 from Jesus. And the reason why the world is going to take notice that when we love our enemies that way, the reason why the world would take notice of that is because the world doesn't love that way. It's not how they love. The world loves like Jonah loves. The world wants to love the people that are just like us and sort of do the kind of things that we want them to do and say the kind of things and act the same way and wear the same clothes and do the same thing, whatever. And yet the love of the gospel is seen when we love all kinds of different peoples. Even if they're our enemies. When we love in the power and in the pattern of the gospel, the world will take notice. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 43 to 47. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see what Jesus is saying? If we have a church full of people that are all sort of, you know, uh, look the same, act the same, you know, all these kinds of things, and we sort of create this culture where if you're just like me, then you can be part of our church. Then we're missing the gospel. A church should be reflective of its community. All different kinds of people. All different kinds of backgrounds. All different types of personalities. Extroverts, introverts, black, white, male, female, a whole nine. There should be something about the church that the world looks at and goes, that collection of people is odd. For the right reasons, not because we're just odd. Which we can be that. But this is the beauty of the gospel and the people of the gospel. When we love our enemies... When we're gathered together by grace and the glory of God in Christ Jesus. The more we do this, the more we get behind what angers us and see that they are grounded. See those angers are often grounded in an inconsistent and selfish love. The quicker we rehearse how God dealt with us in Christ, the quicker we trust in the power of that gospel to be quieted in our love, to quicken towards our enemies, the quicker God will be glorified and mankind be reconciled as we go about that great work of being ambassadors of reconciliation here in our community. So I want I want us to be haunted by that question that God asks of Jonah in chapter four, verse uh, four and verse nine. You see it there? Be haunted by that question. Here it is again. Do you do well to be angry? Think about that thing that angers you, whatever it is. Do you do well, do you do well to be angry? In other words, what Jesus or what God the Father is saying to Jonah there, is your anger benefiting you? Making things better? I'm sure that in some ways it kind of makes us feel better because we kind of feel better than that other person that we're mad at or angry at or we don't like. But the reality is we carry that anger around with us every day. And it is clear that Jonah did not do well to be angry. He wanted to die. 
And God was graciously helping Jonah to see that. His anger led him to the bottom of the sea, the belly of a fish, and worst of all, Jonah's anger led him to bitterness towards his enemies. That is the worst of all. You will never have the peace of Christ if you carry around bitterness towards your enemies. You and I, friend, do not do well to be angry and hold on to that anger. God knows that, and so he has provided an answer for our anger in Christ. Look to him, beloved. Look to him to satisfy the penalty of whatever anger you have, even an especially justifiable anger, as we see here. The Ninevites deserve punishment. And so even that justifiable anger that you have, remember, we we learned in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to be angry, but do not sin, right? Look to Christ, though, to satisfy the penalty for whatever anger you have towards your enemies. And live in the love and the mercy and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Go then and make peace with your enemy in that love. Restoration Church, we don't do well to be angry and sin. Remember the question of that author in the Time Magazine article. Remember at the beginning. Does our country do well to be so angry with one another? And it doesn't. Sometimes it benefits us. A lot of times it doesn't. Remember God's kindness to you and in the pattern and the power of his love. Go make peace with your enemies. Don't be selfish and inconsistent in your loves and in your worship. Live in the power of the gospel and the God of the gospel, which leaves us on that final point. The God of the gospel. This is the compassion of God. Briefer point here. The compassion of God. We've looked at the anger of man. Now the compassion of God. Compassion of God. We've been highlighting the compassion of God throughout this entire sermon series. Even today, we've talked about God's compassion so far. But I want to end our study of this book by remembering the passion of God for the nations. You see that word pity there in verse 10 and 11? That word could be translated compassion. Now, we don't know how Jonah reacts to this question, but the question is a penetrating one, isn't it? He's saying, God is saying again, you you pity or you have compassion on a little plant that you did nothing to bring about and died in a day. Should I not then have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? By the way, that's strange, sort of also much cattle. Remember, that's referencing the resources of Nineveh. Now this question, it ends on a question. I love how the author does it. It ends on this rhetorical question. Note the book is ending on a question to you, the reader. It is absolutely amazing that God would even reason with Jonah or with us. This is just more evidence of God's slowness to anger. He's reasoning. He's helping us see. And what God is saying here is that if Jonah or if we would have compassion over the loss of some trifle, some small thing, then why should God not have compassion on over 120,000 people who don't fully understand what danger they're in? That's what God means there by they're not knowing the right hand from their left. What God is saying there is like they don't know. They're lost. They don't understand that they're in danger. They don't know that punishment is on its way. They don't know. Why should I not have compassion on them? You're over there preoccupied with this small thing. Why should I not have compassion on them? If you would have compassion on a plant which you did nothing for, why should I not have more compassion on a city that is headed towards destruction? And so, friends, I believe this passage is preparing us for the new covenant where we see God hardening the heart of the Jews who had for centuries neglected the grace of God like Jonah did. 
And he's preparing now, moving to bring in the fullness of the nations for his glory. You can read more about that in Romans 9 to 11. And so the picture we have of God here is one of compassion for peoples and for cities that are full of people that don't know the gospel or the God of the gospel. The picture we have here is a compassionate missionary God who longs to see his glory shining brightly among the nations. I believe it would be right for us to even say something similar of every great city on earth today. Should God not have compassion on Baghdad, on Beijing, on Shanghai, on Tokyo? Should God not have compassion on Manila, on San Paulo, on all kinds of cities like Istanbul or Delhi or Mexico City or Cairo? Should God not have compassion on them, on Moscow? Should he not have compassion on them? Should he not have compassion on New York City or on Washington, D.C.? Should he not have compassion on the hundreds of thousands of people that don't know, that don't understand God and the God of the gospel? This is what God is saying to us today, Restoration Church. If we would pity the loss of some small thing, why should God not pity the loss of worship in great cities around the world? And if we agree with that, if we agree that his compassion, God's gracious, merciful God, this God, if we agree that he is slow to anger, that he's steadfast in his love, if we agree that this God, the one revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, if, he, if we agree that he is worthy of all of our worship, then what will we do to see it brought about? What will we do? Not to earn God's love, but to reflect it. Will we be preoccupied with the trifles of our own lives? Will we be preoccupied with the small things? Small questions that are based in personal preferences and personal comforts like Jonah. Focusing on God's grace to me. Those things are not wrong, but focusing on them. Will we do that? Or will we burn with a white-hot passion to see the compassion of God swallow up the rebellion of man amongst the nations for the exaltation of Christ. Which will it be? We can't have it both ways. Which will it be for us? Either we be preoccupied with ourselves or we are preoccupied with the glory of God amongst people that do not yet know. Which will it be for us? And so this is my prayer for us, Restoration Church. As we watch 2017 come to a close and we uh, look into 2018, I pray that all of us, going back to last week, I pray that all of us will die more to ourselves and live to God. I pray that we will sell out in the great task of making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ, both here in D.C. and around the world. We would do the great task of sharing this good news to our enemies here in our own city with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our friends, with our neighbors. We share the good news. They don't know. Bring God's love to them. Share God's compassion to them. Even and especially those enemies and those rivals, those kinds of people. Will we be jealous to see God's glory advance amongst the Spanish speakers of Washington, D.C.? Will we, see, will we be jealous to see God's glory, God's compassion come on the Kurds of the Middle East? Will we be Will we be passionate as God is to see the compassion of God go to all kinds of people around the world? That they might know, that they might believe, that they might see that salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us to earn. It belongs to Him to grant by grace through faith as we preach the gospel to them and see them come to faith 
And we plead with him to come and follow him. The Lord, we have a promise. We've already read it. He promises to have a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we, this church, gets to be a part of that. To spread the compassion of God, the news of his compassion in Christ towards his enemies, towards us, that they might repent and believe and be bound up in him and know this God. And I am praying, as we have already been doing for now eight years almost, that we would continue doing that all the more in the coming years. As we have sent people out to all kinds of places, to Russia and to to Jordan and to other places around the world. May we continue doing this. And may we be zealous to see God's glory advance again amongst those Spanish speakers. May we see be jealous to see God's glory advance to our neighbors. And may we be willing to pay the price, no matter what it may be. Our comfort, our rejection, because we must not be preoccupied with the small things. We must be preoccupied with the great things of God, His compassion among the nations. Let's pray and ask God for help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Jonah. We thank you, God, that you are mighty to save enemies. Oh, God, may we not be like Jonah, preoccupied with our own comforts, forgetting so quickly your grace to us. But may instead, may we be constantly reminded that we were once enemies and you saved us. And so may we go and speak of your compassion to others, even and especially our enemies being consistent in our love and our worship. Courageous even. And may you grant grace for repentance, both here in D.C. and around the world, for the exaltation of your glory, because you are a good God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.